The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. That hasn't stopped some filmmakers from traveling deep into the unknown realm of adapting the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide to the world of cinematic Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be reviewing 2005's The Call of Cthulhu, written by Sean Branny and directed by Andrew Lehman. And joining us to discuss the film, we have some very special guests, as we indicated at the end of our Whisper in Darkness episode. You may know them best as B67 and Unhelpful Bureaucrat, or more <laughs> specifically, it is Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman, the the uh, the producers, the writers, directors uh, uh, in, involved in the cast of Cthulhu, or the call of Cthulhu, I should say. I'm already stumbling over my words. It's not a big deal. I'm not nervous at all. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us on uh, the cast of Cthulhu. Uh, it's our pleasure to be here. It's nice to be talking Cthulhu for a change, huh, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for asking us. <laughs> no, of course. Um, this is, and I think even this was something James and I wanted to happen since we began this podcast. And what was it, October of of last year? I think. Yeah, right before Halloween time. Yeah. yeah so um, we we consider this uh, the apex of our career. It's all downhill after this. Um, <laughs> and before we talk about uh, the Call of Cthulhu, the film itself, um, I wanted to talk about just some general things Lovecraftian. And first and foremost, I have to kind of uh, shamelessly fanboy out and say, Andrew, I've I've listened to the uh, you know the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast for years and years. It was one of the first podcasts I ever started listening to. So now I can't read a Lovecraft story without hearing your voice. I have to say, oh, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and, and so I, I guess uh, you know that would kind of be a lead into my first question. The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a creation of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which you two are both involved in. And if people are familiar with Lovecraft and his work, but are not familiar with that, I mean, just talk a bit about the group, what you guys do with it, what your your goals or, or your drive behind it. Because I, James and I are both members. We find it a lot of fun, but there might be a lot of people out there who are just not really familiar with what you guys do over there. Well, before we get into that, let me correct something that you just said, which is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We have both read for it and we are fans of it, but it is not a, a creation of ours. It okay. is created by Chris Lackey and Chad Pfeiffer, um, and it's it's their baby, not ours. I'm I'm very happy to be affiliated with them, but that's their gig, and they've they've uh, they've paved the way for all Lovecraftian podcasters. That's for sure. Fair enough. Uh, and then we were going to talk now, talk about HPLHS for real. Now, Sean, take over. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for starters, I guess for folks who, who aren't familiar with the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, um, we are in fact an actual society. <laughs> uh, we, we have members uh, like you guys, and, and there are now thousands of them scattered across the globe from South Tasmania to Northern Finland. And, uh, really, uh, I forget the current number of countries, like 30 or 40 countries, uh, in between, we've got members in uh, at the moment. So, uh, so we are a society. We are the largest Lovecraft organization in the world. 
Uh, we're also producers of Lovecraftian Entertainment, so we've over the years done a wide variety of stuff from audiobooks to motion pictures, radio dramas. We've done uh, some actual books. We've done a number of musical projects. Um, you know, if it comes to the collision of Lovecraftian Entertainment, we've probably at least dipped a toe, if not uh, wholeheartedly jumped in on it. Yeah, uh, we got our we got our start, you know, like a lot of people playing Call of Cthulhu, the role playing game, mm. back in the mid '80s when that game was relatively uh, new, and uh, Sean and our friends Daryl and Phil and a bunch of other people, over the years, high school and college, we did a lot of increasingly ambitious live action games, which morphed into film projects and all the other stuff that we have done since. And at the moment, Andrew is in it. We have a brick and mortars headquarters building uh, here in Los Angeles, and uh, that's where Andrew is at the moment. And uh, that's where we produce and make a lot of the things we do. And when it's not pandemic season, we host live events there and gaming nights and a whole variety of different types of things at our headquarters there in Los Angeles. So, And so you even just kind of touched upon the next question I wanted to ask you then, which was, your first exposure to Lovecraft as a writer and then this larger world of a mythos, because there there seems to be sort of a, I don't want to say a generational divide, but sort of a difference where uh, younger, uh, like millennials and people younger like James and myself, kind of, we were first familiar with Cthulhu as an entity in many different properties, and then like, oh, where does this, this tentacled thing come from? And then like, oh, this is a, a guy that wrote it, whereas older generations well, I should say older than millennials, at least, is sort of, there's more of a, a, a sort of it's been handed down. Some people found short story collections that their father read or that kind of a thing. What, so what was it for the two of you? Uh, for me, it was uh, my my weirdest friend, uh, Daryl Touchton. Uh, this was back, again, in, in the 80s. We were high school kids, and he handed me this anthology of horror stories and was like, oh, you got to read this story called The Rats in the Walls. It's really weird. <laughs> And I read it, and I was like, wow, that's really weird, uh, and really liked it. And so I had read Lovecraft stories before uh, a different weird friend of mine gave me a copy of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game um, and went down that path. But uh, my first encounter with Lovecraft, though, was uh, through a, an anthology, and it was the story of the rats in the walls, which has always held a very dear place in my heart. My first encounter was was that night that Sean invited us over to play that game. I had never heard of H.P. Lovecraft before <laughs> uh, I played Call of Cthulhu. And the game we played was called, uh, back then it was called The Fungi from Yuggoth by Keith Herber. Uh, it has since been re-released under a couple different titles. Uh, and we did an adaptation of it for our Dark Adventure radio theater series called The Brotherhood of the Beast. Um, but yeah, I my first exposure was indirect through Call of Cthulhu. And that particular adventure is kind of a greatest hits collection of Lovecraftian monsters and settings. Um, so I started reading the fiction because I was playing the game and it's, you know, it's kind of cheating <laughs> to, uh, to read too much of the fiction before you play the game. Cause you spoil some of the surprise and mystery for yourself if you know the fiction well. Uh, but but yeah, I think the first story I probably read was Call, The Call of Cthulhu, and um, uh, yeah, that that was that was how I got into it. It's all Sean's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling we're going to be hearing that phrase a couple times in this episode. <laughs> um, 
And, and Only the... Vander's doing the talking. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I guess then, I mean, everyone, everyone has a favorite. So, I mean, I guess the first exposure, I know you say that sort of rests with you, but if you had to pick a favorite of his works, which would it be if you had to? I'd probably go for the story, the Call of Cthulhu itself. Um, you know, it, it's emblematic of his uh, of his most important work as an author. Uh, it's a great global adventure story. It's a mystery story. It's a great embodiment of the the very concept of cosmic horror. Um, you know, it, it touches on from things that are giant and philosophical to things that are very small and intensely personal. And I think. Uh, you know, it, it's it deserves its place, you know, in the pantheon of, of you know, important uh, horror fiction stories of all time. I wouldn't disagree with any of that, but just for the sake of naming another story, I would say uh, The Color Out of Space, mm. uh, just because it is certainly, it's a much more intimate tale and, and very moving and, you know, especially by Lovecraftian standards, it... Uh, it really does an amazing job of combining incomprehensible horror with a human tragedy. And it's, you know, just exquisitely written if you care for that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think depending on what film we're covering, if you ask James and I, our answers might vary uh, depending on the day. I think, uh, you know, when we've, we've colored or we've colored, we have covered now three adaptations of the color out of space on this podcast. Um, and so I think when we're talking about that, like, yeah, that really is our favorite. And then when we're covering something bad, we're longing for something like, I think, I think if, if it came down to it, the shadow over Innsmouth might be my favorite one. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure about that. James, which, which one did you say was your favorite? I mean, I've grown to love the color out of space, like more and more. I think that's the one I kind of go back to because of the same thing where, it's just this human tragedy. Like it, it basically brings all of Lovecraft's ideas into just this poor family that's going through hell and seeing what they go through. And that's like, oh, that's not all that's going to be. It's, that's just the start. Like everyone else is going to experience this, but let's get this little snapshot at a time of this family trying to go through it all and they don't come out through the end. Yeah, J James is quite a fan of the bleak ending, so... Very much so. <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, on our previous episode, we were talking about the Whisper in Darkness, so he was, uh, he was quite happy with the, the, uh, the way that you adapted that, uh, you know, change it from the story. He, he was quite Definitely. thrilled by that, but... Oh, very much so, yes. <laughs> so, and, and I guess before you guys even got into, into filmmaking, you had other ventures, you even mentioned the audio stories and music and stuff, and I know James had, had some questions along, along those lines that he was certainly curious about. Yeah, I was going to ask about uh, Cadaver Records, Andrew, and how like how you got involved with them, with the the readings of of Lovecraft stories. Um, you know, it's it's been a long enough ago now that I don't clearly remember. <laughs> Jonathan Jonathan Dennison, who runs Cadabra, approached me, and and how he knew to approach me. I guess I'm not really entirely clear. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he approached me and said he was launching this this specialty label that was going to do, you know, spoken word audio on vinyl. And uh, he he was going to do some Lovecraft stories and would I be interested in reading them? And I said, 
sure, of course. I enjoy I enjoy reading into a microphone, uh, <laughs> and I like that material. So I said, sure, um, thinking you know that it would be one or two things, and that right. would be and that would be the end of it. And miraculously, he has kept Cadabra going and growing, and and he's branched out into other authors and lots of other readers and. Uh, he he just keeps doing his thing, and he's a nice guy, and I keep saying yes because <laughs> he doesn't because he doesn't ask too often. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I was going to ask about that too. Like, so basically, he just comes to you and says, "Hey, we want to adapt, you know, the color out of space. Would you like to read that, or do you come up with suggestions for him? Hey, I'd really like to read this one for you. You know, no, no, that's it's all." Okay. It's it's all his initiative. Um, cool. And he doesn't do, I mean, he doesn't do adaptations. He It's straight up sure. the text of the stories. Now, right. he, has, he has brought in a lot of heavy-hitting composers to write background music and atmospheric sound and so forth. Oh, yeah, uh, like Fabio Fritzi from the yeah, album. Yeah, and, definitely. And, um, uh, and, but, you know, but, uh, but no, it's, it's all, all the projects are his, his instigation. <laughs> Um, do we have any other work like to look forward to? Or again, he's just when he, when he feels like it, he's like, "Hey, Andrew, <laughs> would you like to <laughs> record another one?" He has he has asked me about one, and okay. honestly, I can't remember what the title is. <laughs> because, I mean, we're just we're busy with lots of our own projects, and I I say yes in a general way, and say you know, I'll worry about it later when when the deadline is a lot closer than it is right now. <laughs> so. Um, uh, I am. I, I know I do owe him one, but I honestly can't remember which one it is. <laughs> okay. Um, final question for the cadaver thing. Um, is there a particular performance of yours from like the 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 actually like the bunch that you've done that you would suggest for listeners to like? Hey, you should seek out this one. You know, buy well, that one. It's kind of funny because I don't own a, a turntable. <laughs> so Jonathan sends me these test pressings of these records that I cannot listen to. Um, so I've, I've never actually heard any of the vinyl recordings. So I, I can't make a recommendation. Honestly. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, su I'll suggest Dagon. Dagon's a Okay. A I'll take your word for it. <laughs> trust us here. Or at least trust James. He's a, yes. he's, he's a collector of physical media. I, I would like to have more, but a, a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan only has so much space, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so you, so you guys have obviously the society and as a, as a group, a, a troop, if you want to call yourselves, we're around a while before call of Cthulhu became a, a thing. I, I should say the film adaptation of call, call of Cthulhu became a thing. So, what was it about, I guess, the genesis of the idea that, like, you know what, let's uh, let's start making, like, let's think about making a, a movie, maybe? I, I mean, I know that there's there's been some visual medium, uh, Andrew, that you've been involved in even long before that, but what was it that it was sort of like, we want to make a movie, and also, like, let's have it be The Call of Cthulhu versus something else, like The Color Out of Space or something, which um, might have been a, a bit more... Um, Easier. Easier. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, so thank you, Sean. <laughs> well, we had, um, yeah, as Andrew was about to start, we we had made a, a our first motion picture back in uh, the late '80s when we were college students. Andrew got a grant through his uh, college, and we did a an adaptation of uh, 
the statement of Randolph Carter. And as the millennia rolled around, we uh, did a second film project, I think, called uh, Shuggeth on the Roof, which imagined us uh, tracking down some rehearsal footage of, uh, uh, of a musical that tried to combine the works of Lovecraft with the music of Fiddler on the Roof. And that spun wildly out of control and led <laughs> to us producing a, uh, a cast album uh, that followed the the motion picture, and and they were very popular. And uh, then we released a couple CDs of uh, Lovecraftian Christmas carols, uh, which are also very popular um, this this time of year. And at that point in time, we we uh, actually were starting to feel a little concerned that we were becoming the the funny Lovecraft guys, and that we were just doing stuff that was spoofs or filk uh, music and and that kind of thing. And and that was not really our aspiration. So we thought, oh, okay, we, you know, now that we're not doing the live gaming anymore, if we're going to make a movie, let's try and make a straight up Lovecraft movie and do it in a way that, that nobody's done it before in a way that might be actually better suited to the subject matter than a lot of the, the uh, adaptations, which we haven't necessarily found completely satisfying. So that was kind mm -hmm. of what led us into the path of doing a very straight, adaptation of the call of cthulhu we had taken um Shuggeth on the roof well and and testimony of randolph carter both of those movies played at the hp lovecraft film festival up in portland oregon uh, where we were introduced to you know andrew migliori who ran the festival at that time and the the sort of the gang that were known as the lurkers in the lobby which were you know <laughs> other amateur lovecraftian filmmakers and you know it was a it was a very mutually supportive environment. And we had seen um, one of the short films that we had seen up in Portland was called The Old Man and the Goblins, um, which was which was done. It's a modern day film, but done in the style of a um, uh, black and white stop motion animated German puppet film from like 1918 um, by. Um, uh, Mark Caballero and, and, oh, I'm so sorry I'm blanking on their names right now because they are still... Wal Wal is it Walsh? Seamus Walsh? Mark Walsh and she Mark, Seamus, Mark Caballero and Seamus Walsh. I think there that's right. There we go. Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. They run a company called Screen Novelties. They're still, they're still working and doing amazing stuff. But um, when we saw this vintage style animated short of The Old Man and the Goblins, I think that's when it began to occur to us that doing a Lovecraft movie in the style of the 1920s might really be a, 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 an excellent way to solve a lot of the difficulties of adapting that material. Um, so that was sort of where the idea of doing it as a 1920s silent film may, may, may have gotten its start. And mm -hmm. Old Man the Goblins is still a delightful film, very much worth watching if you can find it. I don't know if it's still out there on the internet anywhere or not. We will certainly uh, look for it. And if we've found it by the time this episode goes live, um, yeah. it will be included in the show notes so that people can, can look for it. Now, when it came down to, I mean, directing duties, did you jump at the chance or was everyone kind of drawing straws like, well, it's a short <laughs> straw. Andrew's going to be the director. Uh, I don't, I don't completely remember how we divvied up those duties. Um, do you, Sean? <laughs> uh, you know, this was a very long time ago already. Yeah. I was thinking about that, talking about Call, Call of Cthulhu today. This a few years have gone by. But um, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think going into it, uh, the plan was that you were going to direct it and I was going to do the script for it. And yeah, that was just the, the, the plan of attack. But I, yeah, I don't remember how we arrived at that plan of attack. So hmm. I think uh, in part it, it may have been because a silent film is, you know, it's, it's pure picture. And um, as a, I've been a graphic designer for a very long time. So in, in, in some ways, a, a silent motion picture is really kind of a graphic design project in some ways. So that, that might have had something to do with why we decided I would be uh, the guy to do the directing of the silent one. And, and then Sean, who's more of a theater guy, took over as the director once we had a, a talkie with actors speaking lines. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to me that I, I know in doing research and taking notes for uh, the Call of Cthulhu, I know the the, sh- the short story was I think de- de- um, declared at one point unfilmable, which is pretty hilarious considering how faithful an adaptation you guys did and how it does bring out uh, really how how the story builds to this exciting climax. Which I think like of of all the Lovecraft stories that there are, if anything, the Call of Cthulhu would be one I, I think that would be the most ripe for adaptation. <laughs> I, you know, I, th- I think one of the reasons in general that Lovecraft gets tarred with the, the, the term unfilmable, you know, is as a writer, his objective was never to stel- tell stories about people. People were sort of a byproduct in Lovecraftian storytelling. And on the flip side, in, in dramatic entertainment, people tend to be the focus of it. It's about you know, starting back with Aristotle to, you know, pick any modern story tell you like almost all of it is about human beings and a, an emotional and personal journey that they go through. And that really is one of the very fundamental challenges with all Lovecraft stories is, is, um, is if you're going to dramatize them, the perspective through which we're going to um, experience it. And that was kind of one of the the interesting things with Call of Cthulhu was in, in you know, we, we called him the man um, in the story. And in telling the man's story, you know, we wanted it to, to audiences to be able to subjectively relate to this guy and this investigation that he goes on in a way that's perhaps more personal than you might feel when you read the Lovecraft story. But we didn't want to add in the man's girlfriend and the man's dog and the set of human relationships that we didn't really want to add anything into the story that Lovecraft didn't have there, you know, and as a result, it is an uncommonly, uh, the adaptation is uncommonly close to the source material, mm-hmm. um, perhaps more than any other Lovecraftian feature, because, you know, in order to fill out, uh, the, the needs of a, a narrative feature film, other people, you know, you need to add in, other characters, a character's journey, you know, a beginning, middle, and end on an emotional basis uh, for the protagonist. So, and I've I've got a couple more questions about the Call of Cthulhu, but by all means, if it turns out like ah, oh, this is so long ago, quit bugging me, and we can certainly move on to Whisper in Darkness or just some some more general things. But because I I know one of the things that James and I talk about a lot when it comes to film adaptations is. The stories are told from a first-person perspective. There's a lot of the internal um, depictions of an existential dread and, like, well, how do you visually depict existential dread? So when it came time to make the movie, did you kind of 
have these discussions or these thoughts or even these challenges like how are we going to make this and really kind of express this idea of like sure there's a, a monster at the end but there is a larger fear outside of this or or, or the challenge of depicting these concepts because even you read on the page um, non-Euclidean geometry and you know a guy falling into an angle that shouldn't have been there um, how did you kind of decide to tackle these sort of concepts that don't seem immediately applicable to a visual medium well i i i would say that a lot of it comes from you know we're telling this particular story through the perspective of the man um who's going on the journey and in a lot of ways he he becomes us and we want to see him process these these cosmically weighty ideas uh in a way that we can visualize them and he, he becomes us. So, you know, we were, I think very well served by uh, Matt Foyer is the actor who played the man. And, you know, he had scenes where it's like, okay, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta see you fitting together these jigsaw puzzle pieces of, 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 you know, cosmic ma magnitude and have that ripple through you. You know, we have to see you feel these ideas and it's a, it's just not an easy challenge to toss on a, on an actor's lap. We, we also, you know, um, all the dream sequences are, you know, very stylized. We, we took advantage of the fact that it was, that we were making believe it was 1926 when we made the movie. So we were able to use that sort of German expressionist style for all of the dream sequences and the sets were, you know, forced perspective and, and made of flat, cutouts and layers and things like that. We did some, you know, some of the big ideas, we did some cutaways to, to prop stuff. You know, there's, when the man is, when the man finally finds that newspaper clipping about the, the alert, you know, there's, he's in his office and there's a dinosaur skull on the wall behind him. And there's scientific charts about, you know, geologic time and stuff like that. So, um, we were able, because it's a, you know, a silent picture, we were able to rely on some purely visual things like that um, to, you know, plant ideas in, in the uh, mind of the audience. And also, uh, you know, the music, it is impossible to understate how vitally important uh, the music is in all filmmaking, but especially in a silent picture where so much of the emotional journey is is being communicated through music and uh, we had three composers on the call of cthulhu uh troy sterling niece ben holbrook and nick pavkovic who each took on a different part of the score hmm. and hmm. you know without their um incredible talent uh, uh, uh especially under a tremendous deadline um uh the, the movie is is an utterly different experience without the music utterly different <laughs> i would 100 percent agree with that uh, assessment and um because you mentioned uh that part of the the impulse to kind of make a movie was that what i find to be a very genuine response of like oh you know the stuff that we're seeing this this isn't really we don't like this this doesn't really seem to to get at the point of what lovecraft is doing and so I, i'm wondering as two people who are not just filmmakers but also big fans of it, you know, and even to a certain extent, like scholars and having done research and, and kind of are maintaining the the legacy and the work of, of this author. 
what mistakes do you kind of see that people have made when trying to adapt Lovecraft or some things where you just kind of look and like, this is, this, this is kind of missing the point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I would suggest a a bunch of folks have put Lovecraft somewhere in their title to help their marketing and they've chucked Lovecraft out the window. You know, (laughs) it's just, there are a number of Lovecraft films that have virtually no Lovecraft in them, maybe some fleeting topical reference or somebody pulls the Necronomicon off a shelf and it's like, that doesn't make it a Lovecraft (laughs) film. Um, And whether that's, you know, out of (laughs) indifference or ineptitude or, you know, uh, you know, deliberately saying, Hey, no, let's just call it HB Lovecraft's, you know, the girl with the chainsaw, you know, <laughs> and and let's call it a day of that. Um, or, you know, it's because you really thought you were making a great adaptation of The Hound and it just ended up having a girl with a chainsaw. You know, I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think Lovecraft r- remains relevant because there's something in the writing that lights people's fires and stirs their imaginations. And I think if you holy chuck what that imaginative spark of Lovecraft's is out the window, you end up with, you know, an adaptation that doesn't feel very Lovecraftian. And I think there's, there's a few out there that I would categorize that way. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I would add that, you know, now that we've done it a few times, we've certainly grown to appreciate how hard it is to make any movie. <laughs> and, you know, the yeah. vast the vast majority of movies are made with someone else's money. We have been lucky that we have made our movies with our own money, so we get to make them the way we think they should get made. But most filmmakers are not in such a position, and if if the guy with the money says, I want a girl with a chainsaw, then sometimes you just have to put in a girl with a chainsaw whether you think it's a good idea or not. And, you know, what yep. the guy with the money wants is to make more money. Right. He doesn't necessarily care how it gets made. So that's, you know, it's easy to knock a lot of terrible Lovecraft adaptations for not having any Lovecraft. But uh, that, you know, some of those filmmakers just didn't have too many options, probably. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, making a movie is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Having said all that, though, if there is a movie release called H.P. Lovecraft's Girl with a Chainsaw, I'm probably going to check it out. <laughs> see? That's, uh, it's it's going to be called well, this podcast, though. We've why. already registered it. Don't go there, guys. We've, we've got, it's going to be coming out next year. <laughs> and, and you know what? It'll, it'll probably be one of the best adaptations that, that's out there. I think, um, yeah, and, and I think we've we've harped on this on this podcast plenty of times, but just. It seems like there, there's kind of a, uh, not a trend, but someone might throw a tentacle in a movie and be like, well, that's Lovecraftian now, because obviously he created tentacles, um, which is like, well, well, n- no, what you've made is just hente, basically. Um, but, and it seems like, as you said, Andrew, like there are people with money, and, and so the, the tendency seems to be, well, his stuff is in the public domain, anyone could kind of make whatever they want, and there's there tends to be more of a focus away from the emotional to the visceral, it seems like, which has never really been a big part of Lovecraft stories, if for no other reason than the narrator typically gets terrified and passes out. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a trend in filmed entertainment and genre entertainment in general. You mm-hmm. know, there's... And, and, you know, some people enjoy that and some people do not. <laughs> and it's not, it's not just films, too, because you see it in, you know, Cthulhu Yahtzee, Cthulhu Slippers, Cthulhu Oatmeal, Cthulhu, you know, just like stick the word Cthulhu on it and, and you'll, you'll sell more to someone, mm-hmm. you know. We've, we've often openly mused, too, we wonder if, if, if Lovecraft had lived long enough to see some of his works adapted do you think he'd be the kind of guy that would like to see his work adapted or just or he would have like been the Alan Moore type where it's like, no, you can't touch any of this? You know, I, I think at first he'd have been thrilled just to know people were still reading his works and that his his artistic contribution to the world survived. So I think at the initial response would have been like, well, you know, wow and mind blowing for him. But I think I think oh. He was pretty contemptuous about things that were written for money, uh, things that had no sincere artistic drive behind them. So, yeah, I think he'd be pretty unhappy with some of the treatments that some of his works have got because he 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 didn't uh, he didn't care much for schlock, you know. And. I we 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 ask this of everyone who comes on uh, as a guest, but if if you had to choose, and it doesn't have to be favorite, it doesn't have to be, but just some some of your favorite adaptations of his work when it comes to film, it, what what are some of them for you? It could be one, it could be two, it could be three, whatever just comes to your mind. Well, the first one that comes to mind is called Out of Mind, um, yeah. a, a Canadian made-for-television film. Um, starring Christian Heyerdahl as H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it or reviewed it yet, but it is very much worth your time. Uh, it's terrific. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, the first one I my go-to is always uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, which is <laughs> manages to be more Lovecraftian than lots of things that claim to be Lovecraftian without actually being, you know, it is Lovecraftian without being Lovecraft. Um, but there's so much right about that film and I think it ends up uh, hitting a lot of the right the the right uh, chords for you know a film that's in a Lovecraftian vein without being based on one of his stories um, and now in between Call of Cthulhu and Whisper in Darkness six years go by um, so the same thing with Call of Cthulhu. What was the impetus where you're like, we want to try and get back into this again, and let's try The Whisper in Darkness? Because I have to admit, it's a story that I that often kind of gets lost in the shuffle. I sometimes get The Whisper in Darkness mixed up with The Haunter of the Dark, mixed up with something else. So rereading it and then watching the movie for this, I was like, no, this is actually a really great story, again, and how it sort of builds to a thrilling climax, which you expand upon, um, and then in our opinions, improve upon the text, the sort of in the the uh, Stephen King, the mist type of situation. So what was it with like the whisper and darkness? We're like, this is the next one that we want to tackle. <sighs> <laughs> um, you know, every, every project we've, we've done has generally speaking, been bigger and more ambitious than the one before. Mm-hmm. And having made a, a, a very short feature with no dialogue. We thought, well, next we got to make a, a feature length feature with dialogue. <laughs> I think that was, you know, part of it. Sean, take, take, 
take it. <laughs> well, I think I think one of the things that made Whisper a good candidate is it was a story that already kind of had a dramatic shape. It yeah, it doesn't have a third act in the Lovecraft film, but but at least we've got this hero and he's doing this investigation and he goes off on his journey and a lot of interesting things happen. We also realize that if we 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 could keep within this um this imagined world that uh, that we live in, in which we thought, well, you know, what if when Lovecraft wrote Call of Cthulhu in 1926, it got optioned as a feature film in 1926, and what if five years later, suddenly it's 1931, and pictures are, are you know, silence are out the window, and now everything's, let's do a talkie, and 31's, you know, the year for Dracula and Frankenstein and these great original uh, universal horror pictures, and thought that, you know, Albert Wilmarth's journey in the whisper and darkness might actually lend itself to a a good cinematic exploration as long as we could figure out a way to make again the ending of the story feel like a movie and not just sort of a literary thing where he goes i got scared and i went home uh, which you know just wasn't gonna wasn't gonna fill uh, satisfy the uh, popcorn eating crowd in the uh, cinema to see that happen so uh, uh, a third member of the team is our cinematographer and editor dave robertson and um, I, I remember still <coughs> his bitter complaints <laughs> because when we pitched the Whisper in Darkness, you know, we said it's a story that it's really just two guys exchanging letters. <laughs> and he thought, oh, great, that's going to be a breeze. It's, you know, it all takes place in one location. It's just these two guys writing letters to each other. So Dave thought it was going to be a lot easier than the Call of Cthulhu. Little did he know that we were going to put in a biplane and and uh, all the other stuff that we put in. <laughs> shoot, shoot in the rain. Yeah, shoot in the rain 24-7. Yeah, no, <laughs> we didn't mention that part at first. But um, he was up for the challenge, as always. Dave Dave has been instrumental in all of the Lovecraft, you know, in Call of Cthulhu and Whisper, both David Robertson uh, deserves a huge amount of credit for how great those movies look because he is the uh, cinematographer who pulled them off. Well, and especially with the use of the black and white photography, how evocative some of those sequences and scenes are. James and I were talking about it in the episode where um, Wilmarth is outside and he see just sees the shadow through the closed uh, the the closed shade or curtain and, and the hands being pulled off and just and it's so it's so evocative of something and that like that sort of ex I think existed in our imaginations of kind of when we read the story, but to see it is just like oh that this is exactly what we were hoping to see. Um, <laughs> And then, yeah, you, you include a, a, a chase sequence with a biplane, which is like, that doesn't exist in the text, and this is thrilling. How does one even get their hands on a biplane from the 1930s? <laughs> Tell them, Sean. <laughs> eBay. Uh, so it worked out, uh, you know, we were we were planning to make this movie, and we're getting the, the lots of stuff that we needed to make it. And Andrew had been shopping on eBay for model Curtis Jenny airplanes because mm. we're like okay it's going to be a Curtis Jenny we figured out the the make and all that sort of thing and then he finds this guy in Colorado who's selling the whole plane uh so and it wasn't that much so we bought it but it, it, uh, was, it wasn't a, it was a it was itself it wasn't really a model but it wasn't a full scale airplane either it was like what a half or three quarter scale it's a th three quarter scale uh, so it's you know 75 percent the size of an original mm. uh, curtis jenny it wasn't small it was not small no but sean <laughs> had to, sean had to fly out to colorado and then put this thing 
disassembled <laughs> on the back of a huge flatbed truck and drive it from Colorado back to California where we had to put it back together <laughs> on a soundstage. Wow. And it was, while it was a model, it was built to fly. I mean, it had okay. a, 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 it was like it had a Chevy Chevette engine was the engine in it. And we, we never fired the engine up. Um, that was a path we weren't going to go down, but we did fully reassemble the, uh, the plane to, uh, you know, have it camera ready. So yeah, we, we worked off an actual plane and miniatures and CGI, uh, versions of the same plane. So. Now, was it because of it's it's more of a CG or CGI? Excuse me, because it's more of a, a a sci-fi story, or there's a lot there's a lot of heavier sci-fi elements in this than in some of his other stories. You expand upon that by making a lot of these fantastical kind of devices, which didn't actually exist, but feel like they could have existed in this universe, in this world. I, I guess James and I are wondering. Was it as fun to design and build those machines as we think it is? Because we're like, our imaginations would have just been going crazy. Like, what devices can we make up now? <laughs> uh, it was pretty fun. Um, it also, though, had had uh, we we had commissioned. Oh man! Oh boy! boy yeah. <laughs> oh god! The, the brain cylinders. Ooh. You know, we had commissioned. I had designed these. I had come up with designs for the brain cylinders as the official designer of the of the show. But I knew they were beyond my capability to to make. So we had there was a guy. I don't think he was a member of the society, but he was he was a Lovecraft fan, and he ran a company out in Maryland that that did this kind of technological fabrication. And he he agreed to make these brain cylinders for us. And you know that was it had an elaborate stand, and it was gonna the door was gonna open and reveal the brain. You know. In, in Lovecraft's original story, you know, you, you never see the brain. It's just, it's just the metal cylinder. But for a motion picture, we decided we really, we really want to be able to see the brain and we want to see the face of the person whose brain it is. So we took a little bit of liberty with some of those Mego devices so that, you know, it, it's just much more interesting to, if you're going to have a conversation with someone, you want to see, you want to see their face. You want to get about performance which you cannot get out of a paint can you need something more than that mm. um but this guy unfortunately for whatever reason you know the the day to deliver these finished things came and he said yeah no i'm sorry i'm not gonna be able to do that i'll ship you what i have and what he had was one plastic prototype and a box of miscellaneous pieces of aluminum that had Hebrew letters etched in them. And Oof. it was just a total disaster. And this was literally a week. We were before. already filming by then. Yeah. yeah. It was like a week before we were scheduled to shoot those scenes. So we had to, uh, improvise in great haste at the last possible minute, uh, a completely other solution for the brain cylinders. Um, so that we would have something to point the camera at. And it meant, you know, I had to, unfortunately, I had to spend all my time in the prop shop building things while filming was going on on the soundstage, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, I would rather have been able to uh, be on set, but that's just not the way things worked out. But, uh, you know, so the, the brain canisters that are actually in the movie are not the ones we intended, but uh, 
That's the, that's the story of making movies all over. <laughs> I, th- I think some of those, the, the paint was still wet when they were being shot. Yeah. You know, yeah. they had like just been made and rushed onto set. So, wow. yeah. Well, uh, no matter what happened, it, it still turns out to be a remarkable achievement, very evocative and very effective. Um, and so I, I guess the one final question before we kind of talk more specifically about The Call of Cthulhu is, obviously we're in a pandemic now, it's, it's put a lot of things on hold, but is there any plans for the future, for another adaptation? Is there stuff that you can talk about, can't talk about, anything that you can offer us? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know we 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 have as a as a company as a production company. You know our our fingers in a bunch of different pies. We have a number of different projects we've developed. Um, we've kind of run up to that threshold of what we can accomplish with our own resources, you know, in terms of Andrew was talking before about, you know, when, when you pay for the movie, you get the movie you want. And when somebody else does, you, you make the movie they want maybe. Um, so, you know, now we're looking at projects with that involve other entities, um, you know, uh, some things that are at budgets that are, much, 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 much bigger than, <laughs> you know, we've, we've ever dealt with, um, before. And of course, putting those kinds of plans together is that much more difficult because it's somebody else's money. Um, so, uh, we have, yeah, a bunch of different things that we're working on. Um, nothing that's actually, uh, in production. Well, there's that one secret thing we're working on, but, well, um, I, but in I terms mean, of, of motion pictures, um, I think we talk about black goat cause that trailer has, oh, Premier. Yeah, black black goat fan. I was thinking about. Yeah. Oh, I know else what you're thinking about. But... <laughs> <laughs> Talking past us, James. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we buddy, we can talk a little yeah. bit about black goat, and I think why not? Our, our buddy Dave Robertson has directed a short uh, a short piece which is called Black Goat. Um, he's been working very hard on it. He shot most of it in upstate New York last mm. year, and he's currently wrapping up the final weeks of post-production. Um, he still has a few little effects, inserts to shoot. Um, but uh, it's uh, he, he premiered a trailer for it at the Lovecraft Film Festival in October. And um, we don't know, we don't know exactly where people will be able to go watch it. That's, you know, one of the things about the current situation. But uh, we're, you know, we'll, we'll be working with him to find a home for it where people can watch it. It's it's not long. I think it's what 20, 25 minutes, maybe. Uh, I think it's closer to forty, but but oh, okay. um, yeah. but it's not quite. It's in that weird Call of Cthulhu limbo of of neither yeah. being a. It's too long to be a short, and it's too short to be a feature. But uh, but Black Goat was conceived as being part of a bigger context. Um, while while Dave has really been the driver behind that film, um, the concept behind it is there's a whole set of interlinked stories taking place at different points in time, all of which tie to a central mystery. Hmm. Uh, and so the goal is hopefully that uh, uh, if Black Goat gets some traction, then we can move into telling some of the other chapters uh, of uh, this bigger project, which at least for now is known as the Black Woods. Um, and 
Yeah, I don't know. Anything else about that, Andrew? Um, no. No. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it sounds like it's got a little bit of a the King in Yellow vibes to it, at least in the, in the sense of these different stories that all sort of have a, a little bit of an interlocking mythology, yeah, if you will. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the movies of this, as currently conceived, uh, would have very different personalities from each other mm. and be approached in very different styles, but you know, to the attentive viewer would see things that going, Oh, that's the thing from this. And that's the thing from that and see the interesting ways in which this group of stories all, all, uh, shares the thematic issues and story issues. And ultimately are sort of a bi-directional <laughs> prequel sequel, uh, off a Lovecraft story that, uh, that folks may know. So, well, and I, I, one other question just occurred to me before. Uh, so, but in in the creation of their opposing slash dueling Lovecraft universes, have either Barbara Crampton or Richard Stanley reached out to you guys for advice or feedback on what they're doing? <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a shame. Um, yeah, because I I mean I, on the one hand I guess it's great because the his the Lovecraft name is so is is more widespread and mainstream than it's ever been before and certainly the color out of space stanley's the color out of space didn't make a whole lot of money but it's it was a movie that certain horror circles and and film twitter were talking about so it's it's good and then of course uh lovecraft country and hbo um you know kind of lovecraft adjacent but at least at least the name is out there and and uh, a wider audience is is getting more familiar with the author so i guess we can um you know transfer into a uh, you know the conversation about uh, the call uh, the call of cthulhu and once again i know you guys have already talked a lot about this so um there may be more to add there may be not as much to add but i guess i did at least want to go through my promise of giving some background of the story and once again if either of you guys have anything to add or or need to correct me by all means feel free but the story was probably written in august or september 1926 after lovecraft returned to providence from new york it was originally rejected by Weird Tales, um, was resubmitted in July 1927, and appeared in the 1928 issue. Um, it seems to have been partially inspired by a dream Lovecraft had in 1920, and further influenced by, I'm probably going to butcher this name, Guy de uh, Maupassant's the, the Orla, described in Supernatural Horror, uh, as described in the Supernatural Horror in Literature, is, uh, relates the advent of France of an in invisible being who lives on water and milk, sways the mind of others and seems to be the vanguard of a horde of extraterrestrial organisms arrived on Earth to subjugate and overwhelm mankind. Um, some of that came through in The Call of Cthulhu. Some of it was lost, such as um, Cthulhu having a penchant for lactose, I suppose, was sort of left out <laughs> of the story. Um, and also seems to have been thir uh, further um, influenced by uh, Theosophy, which uh, S.T. Josie described as a melange of science, mysticism, and religion and he says Lovecraft of course did not believe in theosophy but found many of its cosmic speculations imaginatively stimulating and I guess Andrew or Sean uh, are, are either of you familiar with the term theosophy or be able to shed some light on what that might be for people who have read this story uh, I'm certainly familiar with the with the term um, it was a sort of spiritualist movement from the turn of the century, uh, Annie Besant, I recall, and, and Helena Blavatsky were two of the principal proponents. Um, it is, as uh, ST's 
that's not a bad description. Melange, I think, is what you know. It's a, it's a mix of of mythology and spiritualism and um, wacky, crazy <laughs> hucksterism. <laughs> <laughs> Which were really that was a big thing, spiritual hucksterism of the the twenties. You know, this whole notion of you know being able to be in contact with the spirits and the, you know then the sharpest among them uh, making a business out of it. Um, you know, certainly certainly underlined it, and I think you know as he did with a bunch of different things in Call of Cthulhu, Lovecraft's kind of picking and choosing among trappings. But doesn't go particularly far down the Theosophy path or you know the Freudian dream path. Again, the, the, there are a bunch of these different elements are there, but uh, you know, but I think Lovecraft's more kind of name checking them than than you know trying to make any kind of serious commentary about Theosophy. Um, and you know, it's also the whole concept of Atlantis and you know cities lost beneath the ocean and and. Atlantis and Theosophy sort of go hand in hand because a lot of the mythology involved in Theosophy talks about Atlantis and Mu and these ancient civilizations that may or may not have been influenced by alien beings that had greater wisdom than we did. And this concept that people knew more a long, long time ago and there's wisdom that has been forgotten and is still preserved by, you know, faithful, obscure cults. You know, and that one day, you know, the good old days will be back. And, you know, what was the good old days for someone is, you know, death and destruction for others. So it's that's um, I thought are... we weren't going to talk about politics today. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those ideas have been around in a variety of forms. And, and yeah, like Sean was saying, Lovecraft picked and chose stuff that floated his boat and worked it into the story and but didn't feel at all compelled to stick to that story. <laughs> <laughs> um, Josie also calls um, the Call of Cthulhu, uh, quote, manifestly an exhaustive rewriting of Dagon, which had never occurred to me until I, I, I read that. And I guess it's partially true because Dagon, which is a very short story, but basically a guy stumbles upon something which has been spewed up from the sea and sees something that he thought uh, was quite maddening, but Andrew, you seem a bit skeptical of that of that description. Um, I don't know if it's manifestly a rewriting of Dagon. It has some of the same elements, <laughs> but it's not like a bigger, better version of Dagon. It's a different story. Mm -hmm. yeah. My opinion. I, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, now now we have to get St. Josie on this podcast, James. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, Esty's a very nice man. He he's very helpful to us all the time, and I bet if you asked him, he'd probably yeah. be happy to uh, chat with you guys. So. Cool. Well, I guess maybe stay tuned, uh, oh, Cassica through the listeners. But um, <laughs> yeah, and and um, I don't know what it, it was. It was rereading this story and then rewatching this movie, which uh, I mean, sort of Andrew and Sean, you both touched upon it, but why this story is so effective because. Some some adaptations and some stories don't work as well because what what I what I find really effective is this concept of this inescapable fate is larger than something that I can comprehend and is certainly out of my control. And by writing this story where these where people around the world have been having these different dreams of you know based around this one cosmic event, well cosmic event the earthquake of course that that uh, 
causes Rilea uh, to, uh, to rise from the sea, it sort of implies to me that there's something baked into the creation of people that they're always going to be kind of tuned into this larger thing that's happened, which seems horrific to me to kind of, to because it accentuates this idea of, um, yeah, th this has existed long before us and this will exist long after us. And that I, I find to be so, so shaking and so terrifying, really. I, th I think that's really the essence of cosmic horror, which is getting into things that are scary, that are way, way bigger than us. You know, a zombie apocalypse, yeah, it, it's scary and that, it's problematic or the birds come and attack and there are birds attacking. That's dreadful, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but but this, you know, where there are forces at work that, that, you know, dwarf all of human history, that dwarf the solar system, that, you know, that the, the players in this game are of a such a magnitude that, you know, we are just, uh, we are just being buffeted almost by their indifference, let alone, you know, them trying to, they're going about their business and we're the ants that may get stepped on and may not, and they're not really giving us a second thought whether they did or didn't, you know, <laughs> they're not out to get us. Uh, and in some ways that is, even brings us down further pegs than if we were important enough that they were out to get us. And when when making when making the film and, and writing it, I know you you wanted to be pretty faithful. It's it is an interesting story because of how each little <clears throat> segment or or portion kind of informs something else to kind of eventually build to this realization that well we've we've got to go back to this place and oh there's this giant creature um, which is probably going to destroy us all. Was there ever a temptation to retell the story in sort of a, a without the sense of flashbacks and just kind of in a more chronological order or the temptation to kind of retell the story in, in sort of a different way? Or was there, was the idea always like, no, we, we want to tell it basically as it exists on the page. Yeah. We, we really wanted to tell Lovecraft's story and this is how he chose to tell this story. We thought he did a good job in telling the story. So let's try and film it. You know, let's tell the exact same story, but now let's tell it as a motion picture instead of a short story. Mm -mm. We've, we've since, you know, after we made Call of Cthulhu, then we started doing Dark Adventure Radio Theater and we started doing adaptations in a different medium of audio only instead of a silent picture. It's a it's a pictureless talkie. Um, and we've taken, you know, we've done a lot more of those. So we've taken some more liberties with the structure of some of those stories that we have done for the audio uh, for the radio theater series. But yeah, like Sean said, when our whole mission in making Call of Cthulhu was to make the most faithful adaptation that we were capable of making. So yeah, un undoing Lovecraft's original structure was not something we ever considered. Do you ever allow yourself to kind of dream in the sense of, um, let's say Netflix or Hulu or someone approaches you and like, you know what, here's budget, you can make whatever you want. Would it have? Would it change the way that you approach certain uh, certain productions in the sense of um, even something like a creation? I mean, uh, you, you use stop motion animation for Cthulhu, which in in the vein of we're trying to tell a story like it would have been told in nineteen twenties is remarkably effective. Um, but I guess, do you see is budget to you something which is confining or or is creatively kind of thrilling to kind of think of how can we how can we tell the story within our confines versus instead of like well if you had if you had no boundaries whatsoever, would you take advantage of the of the limit of the the limitless void in front of you? <laughs> I, 
I think there's some of both factors at work because obviously there are there's been lots of storytelling things in in Whisper or Call of Cthulhu that you know had we had an extra half million bucks sitting around we <laughs> might have gone about them differently you know um, but on the other hand you know Andrew and I both come from a theater background and I think one of the great great disciplines that theater teaches you is how to do a lot with a little the clock is ticking the show's got to open when it's got to open there probably is no money left and yet we want to do x you know find a way to do it and you know time and time and time again um in in our theatrical lives we've found ways to do it and a lot of times the ways are more satisfying and more interesting than oh if we had just had some extra money to throw at it i think you know we've We've seen time and time again in some big budget movies that having having hundreds of millions of dollars does not necessarily mean you're going to get a better movie. Um, and sometimes the greatest stuff is the stuff you have to invent because you only have a hundred dollars. And how are you going to achieve this amazing thing with a hundred dollars worth of stuff? You know, a, a budget is, you know, is a tool like a lot of other tools, and to let it become the only tool you use is often a, a terrible uh, a disservice to, to, to the project. Mm -hmm. That said, if Netflix wants to give us hundreds <laughs> of millions of dollars... We We've got some ideas what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so James, we have to get ST Josie and Netflix on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just email Mr. Netflix, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but in, in I've, tried, I've tried Twittering Mr. Netflix. It's gotten nowhere. Nah. <laughs> well, he's probably on TikTok these days, I think, is what's, is what's happening. Um, but uh, in, in with something like the, the Call of Cthulhu, I mean, Cthulhu it, itself, himself, herself, who knows? Um, it, there's at least, a, you know, Lovecraft himself kind of did a, a kind of little sketch of this is what he imagined this creature would look like. And certainly in these days now... Uh, you can just go to Google and just type in like, hmm, Azathoth or Yogg-Sothoth. And there are, are plenty of people out there who have, here's what I think this thing looks like. Um, I, I don't mean to alarm you, Jim, but he's right behind you. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's only going to be a joke that works for the four of us because this is an audio podcast. But that's... <laughs> oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to draw an, an artist rendition, I suppose. Um <laughs> But uh, but when it, like so I, I, I'm not sure what the question is here. But I mean, when it came to even like the, I'm transitioning away. But the Migos in in um in the Whisper in Darkness, um, is it sort of challenging, fun to kind of like think of these things? Because I, it, when it comes to Lovecraft, he describes some things. He does he doesn't describe other things. And so everyone kind of has a picture in their head of like this is what I think it looks like. And you mentioned you know large budget. Sometimes the 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 downfall of that is. Oh, you spent all that money, and that's the thing that you gave us. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, it's definitely it's both fun and challenging. Uh, fun because it's challenging. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's Lovecraft is often uh, criticized for you know overusing this idea that it cannot and must not be described, and yet <laughs> he describes a lot of stuff. Everybody <laughs> has a mental picture of Cthulhu and of Migo and of all these things, so. He, he described them well enough that we all know, have our own idea at least of what they look like. And that's part of what makes them 
fun is that we all have our own idea of what they look like. Um, and that's part of why they're effective. Is And that's part of why we thought doing it as a silent film would be uh, would would really be advantageous for the material because you know there's a lot of crazy words in that story that no two people are going to pronounce the same way and as soon as as soon as we have Matt Foyer utter those words in a specific way then you're going to say oh that's not the way I would have said them and it's going to ruin it but you never hear Matt Foyer say it, so he can't possibly mispronounce it. Um, and, and, you know, some stuff we show and some stuff we don't show. Um, but, yeah, all those things are fun and challenging. Just the other day, Sean, I think on our one of our Facebook pages, someone posted, uh, 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 some, some Japanese artist had done a new visual interpretation of Cthulhu that was utterly unlike any... Mm any version I've ever seen. And it was like, it technically, it follows Lovecraft's description and yet it is a completely new take on on Cthulhu. And it was cool. It, parts of it didn't work. Parts of it worked amazing. But it was, it's, it's this leaving room for interpretation that is part of what makes Lovecraft's writing so effective and so compelling and, and so enduring. I think I remember seeing that 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 picture that you're talking about because I remember my my reaction being like, "Oh, that's really cool." It's not what I think it looks like, but that's still really right. cool. And and that idea of how how these things transcend culture and national lines and all that sort of stuff, I, I think is is really interesting. But and, you know, even having said all this stuff, like if if Guillermo del Toro ever does put his Mountains of Madness movie out there, like I will be entirely fascinated and and, and on their opening weekend to see what he has come up with with uh. Um, why am I blanking on the names of the creatures from out the mountains of madness now? The it? elder things. The, yeah, the, there we go. Those those giant penguin creatures. But um, <laughs> yeah, I guess um, I don't know. We we've covered a whole lot of stuff, and and I guess uh, we've even talked a good deal about the Call of Cthulhu itself. So um, I don't know. I, I guess a, a maybe final question before we sign off, unless James, you have anything, or or Andrew or Sean, if you want to just uh, chime in some stuff as well. But just this idea of for the both of you, your in, in your opinion, why has this man's work like continued on? Because it, it's we're not too far away from you know almost a hundred years that his stuff has kind of continued continued to be pervasive in popular culture and is now more popular than ever. And why do you think that is? A, maybe even especially now, why do you see his stuff catching on so well? I think some of it certainly, for me at least, has to do with with this idea of uh, because it just lets your own imagination take it and run with it. And, and, you know, I think Lovecraft understood well that he would never be able to write anything that would scare you more than your own imagination can scare you. So I think because, because he was deliberately leaving that room for interpretation and deliberately leaving things up to the imagination of his audience. That's part of why his writing took hold with the people who liked it in the first place and continues to take hold with people who are introduced to it. Um, you know, in the modern day and age, uh Oh, the FedEx guy is here. I'm going to have to shut. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> okay. Hello. Uh, while we, while we deal with the FedEx guy too, I think, um, <laughs> one other quality of, of Lovecraft that, that worked very well both in his own time and, and to this day is plausibility. 
is something that's really important to him. And, and some people can find, you know, his writing ponderous and, you know, a story like at the mountains of madness, it, it's a slow burn. It takes a long time getting going. But on the other hand, it's like when his scientists find something that terrify them, we actually believe they're scientists because they've been spouting 70 different types of fossils and they understand the <laughs> geology. Even, and even if we don't, it makes them believable and it makes the horror that's unfolding seem that this impossible thing seems like, wow, well, maybe it is possible because nobody's been to this part of Antarctica and these people who really know things are are saying, yeah, this is true. Yeah, this is true. And then, you know, a story like Call of Cthulhu too, he takes a long, convoluted time to unfold this, this utterly implausible set of coincidences. Yet here, there are no coincidences at all because it's all been... It's all been arranged by this, you know, this this omnipotent force so much huger than mankind itself. And he really takes his time in these stories to make the horror believable. And I think that's part of what makes it more evocative and ring more true to people is the fact that that he takes some pains to help us to help us believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do love how, you know, his his. his stories might have some actual real-life scientific elements in it, but not for the purpose of telling a scientific story, but more, I mean, in in The Whisper in Darkness, it was like they recently discovered the planet Pluto, and, and a bunch of people were thinking, what could be on that thing? And he's like, you know what? I'm going to tell you what's on that thing in my stories here, and just letting people's imagination play with it. And it, it's kind of funny to me is how we're, we're moving into an age, I would like to Thanks. hope, based on uh, some things that have happened, that in which... Um, information is becoming more and more available and our world is becoming more and more understandable and discoverable and yet people are still grabbing onto this guy which like but what exists on the outside of these things whether it's there or not is a weirdly terrifying and also fascinating concept I'm reminded of, of you know when I read his stuff I'm thinking of when I was a kid and stumbling upon a, a scary movie The Exorcist on TV and wanting to turn it off when she's doing the spider walk down the stairs, but always being curious as to like, but, but what's happening? I still want to know. I still want to go back and see what's happening. And just, there is that element in these stories. Well, one of the things that we, we, we've always at the HP Lovecraft historical society, we have often approached this material and chosen to set our adaptations in the time period in which they were written. So our version of Call of Cthulhu takes place in 1926. Our version of Whisper in Darkness takes place in 1931. And part of the reason for that is because, you know, those that was an age when there were no cell phones, there were no satellites, there still were places on Earth that no one had ever seen, no one had been to Antarctica, no one had been to the bottom of the ocean, no one had ever seen Earth from space. There were still these mysteries. Nowadays, you know, we've seen all those things, and yet the the nature of reality seems as tenuous as ever <laughs> nowadays it's like you know what is truth it does truth even exist so on the one hand you know setting it in a in a pre in, in a previous time period where there was not access to that information is helpful because it preserves that mystery but even in the present day i've been coming to realize more and more just because we can see the Earth from space doesn't mean we know anything more about it than we knew back then. <laughs> because it's, you know, 
you know, the nature of reality itself is is very much up for grabs, it seems like. And it's flat. You can see that from space. It's <laughs> right. flat. Flat circle. <laughs> oh. Uh, flat earthers, yes. Yeah. Uh, too yeah. soon. It's too close to the <laughs> But, um, well, I, I guess, you know, Andrew and Sean, thank you so much once again for joining us. If and if people are somehow not familiar with the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society or the two of you, how can people get engaged? How can people find more and just get involved in this wonderful community that exists out there? Uh, Google up Lovecraft Historical. We'll come up first. Uh, we have a big website with all kinds of weird and engaging stuff in it. Uh, we have a big store with all kinds of weird and engaging stuff that's for sale. Uh, we run a ginormous Facebook group with, you know, 100,000 plus people who are in there shouting why they love Lovecraft and, you know, sharing all kinds of interesting stuff. We have uh, lots of things that are just for people who are in the society, you know, as well as just the public at large. At the end of the day, our, our motto, slogan? logo no it's a motto <laughs> yeah. yeah there we go uh is ludo fore putavimus which uh we came up on a uh, on a lark years ago it's latin for we thought it would be fun <laughs> but at the end of the day um you know that's really been our driving principle uh, andrew and i have personally and professionally had a lot of fun playing in lovecraft sandbox and our goal is to be as inclusive as we can to everybody and say hey we're having fun in here come on in and have some fun with us. You know, if it's not your bag, you don't like it. Hey, you know, we're not going to make you stay. Um, but the doors are open and uh, yeah, come have some fun. Yeah. And, and especially I would encourage everyone to, to, uh, to try and get involved in the Facebook group. James and I have posted there a bunch of times. We will probably be posting this episode there uh, to try and get some ears on it. Um, but it, it's wonderful. It's people posting memes, pictures, recommendations. Some of the films we've covered on this podcast came from recommendations on the Facebook page. And I'm like, James, we got to check this one out. So, um, and then some of them come from, you know, just the corners of the internet, like, uh, oh, the curse. How fun was that one, James? <laughs> uh, yeah. What was the other one? Uh, chill? Chill, yeah. Chill and yeah. cool air. That, that Well, yeah. Well, yeah. The less said, the better. Yeah, this is this is well, a season, this is a season of light and merriment, James. Yes. <laughs> well, don't miss. Uh, and Andrew referred you guys to uh, Out of Mind, and if that's yes. one you don't know, it, it's time well spent to see it. I think it's a little over an hour long, but uh, yeah, it's it's terrific. It's good fun. I think it's on YouTube, uh, but uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Right. Cool. Yeah. And and it's important to note on on the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society store, not only can you buy both the Call of Cthulhu and the Whisper in Darkness, as well as many other goodies, but one of our favorite adaptations of uh, The Color of Space by Quan Vu, you can buy a DVD copy of it from your store as well, which is, yeah, we're, we're both wondering when's that guy going to start coming out with more stuff because that's that's a, a remarkably effective film. Yeah, yeah uh, Juan, uh, I had a chance to meet him in Belfast the first time uh, and his partner Jan Roth. They've done, uh, he, he has ambitions to do a, a, a fairly large budget version of Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Wow. And they've wow. shot a proof of concept. It's like a long trailer and it's gorgeous. It's very nice. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because I learned from him that uh, how different filmmaking is in Europe than here because here, you know, there, there both is and isn't any money because it's all private money here. So right. you got to put somebody else's niece in it and give her the chainsaw and do the shower scene in order to <laughs> get a film version of The Hound. 
But in Germany, you've got to convince the arts board and the all the there's all these sources of public funding. But then it's like there's this one committee you have to convince that your idea is a good one. And if you can get them on board with the girl and the chainsaw, you end up with a you know a version of the hound. But uh, from the perspective of European filmmakers, they really lament the fact that the funding is all controlled by these very small, uh, these very small groups. So it's, I, I guess at the end of the day, everybody's got the same problem. It's shaking money out of the money guys and not having them, you know, mess up what, you know, the artistic vision is, but, uh, mm -hmm. implemented in completely different ways. So anyway, that's the, the Juan Vu story as best I know it. Um, oh. I talk to him every, every, every six months or so we, we trade an email or something. So, uh, but he's still out there and, 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 you know, very much would like to, to uh, bring uh, that movie to the finish line. So great. Well, if uh, I guess if Mr. Netflix is listening to this, then uh, hopefully his ears just perked up. But um, yeah, and so um, of course you can always uh, reach James and I. You can email us at moviesofmadness at uh, gmail .com. James is fistful of media on Twitter. I am Nolan fixes teeth, and then of course we have Cast Cthulhu on Twitter as well. You can catch up on uh, back episodes of the call of the Cast of Cthulhu. Excuse me. Uh, by going to casticwithulu.podbean.com or anywhere you find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, um, Spotify, my phone, whatever. I don't know. Wherever you kids find your podcast, you'll be able to find it there. But um, yeah, so, you know, once again, Andrew and Sean, thank you so much. This was an absolute delight uh, sure. for the both of us. We hope that you have, uh, you and the listeners, um, wishing you happy holidays, um, a very happy and healthy new year. I know we're in a pandemic and by the time the calendar turns we will still be in a pandemic but i hope that everyone um is staying safe and happy and healthy to the best of their abilities uh, in, including the the two of you guys out there because we want to see more stuff from the hb lovecraft historical society of course so yes but well thanks so much uh we wish you guys and all your listeners a very happy solstice season <laughs> and a wonderful better new year to come Yes. Better. Thank you very Please, much. God, let it be better. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, James and I, we don't have a, we don't, as of this recording, have a plan yet for January. But stay tuned to uh, our Facebook page and our social media feed to kind of figure out. But uh, you know, um, in the meantime, we'll be uh, waiting and dreaming and ringing in the new year with Cthulhu in his house in Relia. <laughs> very good.